The reading can be found on page 1,222 of the Church Bibles and is from 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 12 to 21. Page 1,222, 2 Peter, chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 12. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Lord God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. And so now we pray, as we have just sung, that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things in your law. Speak to us now of your Son, who is the light of the world, that we may walk in his light and follow and know him always. For in his name we pray. Amen. Our memory is a precious and volatile thing. We rely on it for almost every basic daily task. And if you're anything like me, and I know some of you are, then that's where it often fails. So let me take this opening of my sermon to illustrate that by way of a public apology. Uh, Last Sunday morning after the service, I was asked most reasonably by our ladies' fellowship to arrange for the lovely new piano that's been given to us for the church centre to be ready uh, in the room in which they meet for their meeting on Wednesday. Don't worry, I said, I'll tell Richard. Well, you know what happened next, don't you? Uh, My phone is broken at the moment, and I try to make notes on there, because then they appear on all the screens around me as an aid to my poor memory. So I wrote it on a small piece of paper instead. That wasn't the failure, though. I transposed the small piece of paper into my uh, list of uh, items for Monday's start meeting, uh, staff meeting, and then in the staff meeting, I entirely forgot to mention it. 
So I'm sorry, because frustration resulted. You probably weren't expecting a public apology from the pulpit, and I don't want to make it appear more serious than it was, but it's an example from my life this week of how memory, when it fails, leads to frustration. It matters in the small things of every day. We need our memories in order to maintain good relationships with one another, to navigate around the daily responsibilities that we all have. When our memories fail us, well, then we begin to fall short in those ways. Rather more profoundly, uh, some of you have experienced the awful heartbreak of a loved one whose body is outliving their mind. You've known what it is for Alzheimer's or some other uh, equally dreadful condition to rob your dearest one of their most precious memories, even of who you are to them or who they are themselves. It's an absolute heartbreak. Those of us who've seen it will never forget it because it writes itself deeply on our hearts. The loss of that core memory of another uh, shows us, uh, even more than our fingerprints, how much those deep memories uh, shape our very identity. Just yesterday, there was a story in uh, the news uh, of a man, uh, and in fact, it was a few, few months ago, it was referred to from another story, uh, a man in Canada who at the age of 21 had uh, fallen and hit his head when he was out, and when he came to, he'd forgotten who he was, and it was 30 years later uh, that his memories began to return. He remembered his surname, and they were able to make the connection between uh, him as a 50-year-old and the 21-year-old who'd gone missing all those years before. Memory, then, is a precious thing in navigating daily life, but also in taking us to the very core of our identity. And Peter has written his second letter to enable us to remember That's perhaps clearest in this whole letter in the first paragraph of our passage today. Remember these things, he says, in verses 12 to 15. If you've closed the Bible, do open it again. You'll find the Bible reading that Jacqueline brought for us on page 1,222. Well, remember what things? This is not the first uh, part of his letter, so that's a good question uh, to ask. There would be an irony, wouldn't there, if you couldn't remember last week's sermon uh, when he says, now remember these things. Uh, If that is you, then take heart. I often don't remember my own sermons a week later either, so I really can't expect any more from you. But to make a serious point on that, uh, if you weren't here or you can't remember, or you know you were distracted and weren't really listening, then we live in an age when we have wondrous technology that enables us to listen again. Download it on the computer or onto a working mobile phone. Listen to it while you're ironing or while you're commuting, in my case, while you're on the running machine at the gym. But just in case you've forgotten or you weren't here, then very quickly... Let's see what Peter is wanting us to remember. Look back to verse 2 of this opening chapter. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Remember the gospel is what Peter is saying. God has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ and he's done it even though we were ignorant of God, culpably ignorant of him. We turned away to our own sin and our own desires. 
Uh, and he comes to us in Christ full of grace and full of glory that he might give us life and peace, eternal life, everlasting peace as we trust in him. And you may remember uh, Peter speaks of uh, those to whom he's writing, and that includes us, of having a faith as precious as his, one of the apostles of Jesus himself, if we just trust in God's grace and glory revealed to us in Jesus. If we put our lives in his hands in that step of faith, then we have a precious faith uh, that brings us into God's kingdom. And it will be, if it's a faith that is genuine, a faith that begins to produce the fruit of love. That's why uh, verse 5 from last week, uh, make every effort to add to your faith goodness uh, and so on. And to faith in the end comes love. Or verse 10, be eager to make your calling and election sure. So if you're new to us this morning, if you don't remember last week, this is the gospel. In our ignorance and sin, God has come to us in glory and grace in Jesus. And he calls us to put our trust in Jesus Christ. And on that basis alone, he gives us everything we need for everlasting life and for a transformation of our lives now that we may begin to live differently in a godly way. And he provides all we need that we might begin to love others in his name. That's who we are in Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that. It is our core identity. If we forget it, then we'll experience a kind of spiritual Alzheimer's. The body will function. Daily tasks will be undertaken. Life in the body will go on. But our core identity as a new creature in Jesus Christ will begin to fade away and no longer be that central definition of who we are. And friends, all of us have poor memories. Not all of us forget everything in the way that I sometimes frustrate you, but all of us spiritually are prone to forget. That's why we need to keep meeting together. So we need to keep reading God's word and uh, praying uh, every day of our lives. And it's not just that core identity, it's our daily lives as well. That moment by moment reminder of how we are to live because of who we are in Jesus Christ. This gospel brought consciously to mind moment by moment as we live out our everyday lives will prompt us to live in a way that shows our faith in action, a faith that lives itself out in love. This gospel is both core identity and post-it reminder stuck over every activity, every thought, every word of our daily lives. Remember. Peter says it three times. It's so important. Verse 12, I will always remind you. Verse 13, I think it is right to refresh your memory. Verse 15, I will make every effort to see that you will always be able to remember these things. Three times, he says, you need to remember. You ever need to be reminded of anything in daily life more than once? Well, men, perhaps if I was to ask your wives that question, they might give a different answer. We all need constant reminders, even to put out the bins. How much more do we need to be reminded of who we are in Jesus Christ? That he has loved us and done everything necessary for us to know his eternal life, and to experience his daily transformation as he brings us into that new godly identity that is our birthright in him. Remember who you are 
And when you forget, which you will many times every day, then remember again who you are in him and what he's calling and enabling of you in your life for him. And how can we be reminded or refreshed uh, like this? Well, it's not complicated. Peter writes a letter uh, to enable it to happen, a letter that we might read and that purpose then be fulfilled. So when we meet together regularly with our fellow believers, when we uh, carve out time to spend with the Lord and his word every day, well, then we will be remembering who we are and what we're called to be. And if we're not doing that, then we're likely to increasingly forget. You know, the illustration uh, perhaps is uh, the most vivid. The coal fire is burning. Take the single coal out and place it uh, outside of the grate and it will gradually grow cold and lifeless. So it is for us as Christians. We're designed to remember together. That's why in that great central act of Christian worship, Jesus says, take and eat and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. Not because we're going to forget that Jesus died on a cross uh, in, in the sense that we'll, we'll, it will be a new revelation to us, but that we will forget what it means for us. Who we are as the beloved, forgiven, adopted, eternally accepted children of our Father, sent out to turn our faith into love in every waking thought and action. We need to remember, don't we? We need to remember in such a way that it makes difference. Uh, makes a difference to us. And notice, this is not new Christians that Peter is writing to. Some of you are new believers. One or two of you may be just exploring uh, Christian faith this morning. But most of us here are pretty seasoned believers. And Peter's writing to us. Look at verse 12. Uh, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them. And indeed, are firmly established in the truth you now have. The longer we go on as Christians, the more the danger is that we will forget. Because we learn to uh, imitate Christian uh, obedience. We get into a habit of turning up uh, at church. We can go through the outward motions, but those are the seasons in life when we need most carefully uh, to cherish the inward remembrance. That's true, isn't it, in all uh, our relationships that matter. Do we uh, not need to tell and show our wives that we love them? Because uh, we said it once on our wedding day, and we probably showed it when we were courting them. Well, that's a key to a cold marriage, isn't it? Well, the key to a dead faith is to forget. And not to forget once, or forget in a shallow sense, but to fail to consciously, daily, deeply remember who we are in Christ and what he's called us to be. It was so important for Peter uh, that it occupies his dying thoughts. Verse 13, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent of uh, the body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. As a reference there to the end of John's gospel uh, where Jesus has commissioned people to, to feed his sheep three times uh, showing his restoration in the face of the threefold denial. Peter himself knows what grace is because he failed often and was restored frequently. On that occasion, uh, Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. 
And he said to him, follow me. Well, Peter, it seems now uh, apparent to him that this prophecy is about imminently to be fulfilled. And Peter's immediate concern in the light of his death is not for himself. That's striking, isn't it? It's for these Christians. We don't know who they were. It's for their continuing in life and godliness uh, that he gives uh, his final breath and his last labor of love. Peter is concerned for others and not for himself uh, without consciously thinking of it, illustrating the very kind of remembering that he wants us to have and to put into practice. I've been reading many obituaries this week of a man who I knew only a little but admired greatly. He died uh, quite suddenly and unexpectedly last Saturday night at the height of his powers. Mike Ovey, uh, the principal of Oak Hill Theological College, where I trained, where uh, Aled is currently, and our new curate, Alec, uh, is also uh, one of his pupils. And there was a strikingly consistent theme uh, of those tributes I've been reading this week, a, a godly, gentle, utterly Christ-focused and people-loving pastor uh, with perhaps the best brain in the Church of England. His loss is devastating, and yet the story that is told of his life is that this was a man who practiced what he preached, who loved others until his unexpected demise. I wrote to Alad. Uh, this week because the college community is greatly suffering Uh, and I explained to him I was going to preach on this passage this weekend and just said to him look at what God did when Peter's life was cut to human expectation unexpectedly short God brought this letter to be a blessing to the church for 2,000 years and has strengthened the faith of countless millions of believers through an apparently to human eyes early and unnecessary death. So don't worry about how long you've got. Just make sure you use the time well. All of us will soon put aside at this tent of the body. It's the same language that Paul uses. It's not our final dwelling place. It's not the mansion to be embellished or the palace to be invested in. It's just the tent And we're in it for a few short years before we go away from the body to be at home with the Lord. And in Paul's language, who also used this word departure, Peter knew that he would soon depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Doubtless last Saturday, Mike was preparing his sermon for Sunday. He never preached it because he went to glory instead. And the Lord comes, or when we go to be with him, expectedly or otherwise. Well, we have remembered who we are in Jesus Christ, and we'll be living out that faith in love. I'll make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Uh, That practically means he wrote this letter, probably, Uh, or it might be a reference to Mark's gospel. Mark and Peter were close companions, and Mark wrote down the recollections of uh, the apostle. The point is, Peter acted on his remembrance in such a way as to bring a blessing to others, and we can do likewise. Well, secondly then, uh, remember these things. Uh, What does he want us to remember? We looked back, now we look forward. Remember, he says, that we were eyewitnesses. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Cults, false religions of all varieties, thrive on the cleverly invented story. 
Think of Mormonism, uh, the golden plates and the magic spectacles apparently given to Joseph Smith, convicted English fraudster. No one else who survived ever saw them. Doesn't really have the ring of truth about it. Or Islam, the allegedly illiterate prophet Muhammad and his pretended revelations that mysteriously only assume their consistent and final form around 200 years after his death and where there were no reliable contemporaneous eyewitnesses, resulting in a book, the Quran, that is largely a heretical rehash of the Bible. No credible eyewitnesses to the foundational claims of those religions. They're cleverly invented stories. All false religions are cleverly invented stories. Christianity is different. God enters history. The word became flesh. We've seen his glory, says John. Probably uh, an allusion to that uh, same experience Peter describes here. We, We saw his glory on the mountain of transfiguration. You see, Christian faith doesn't rest on some kind of myth or special pleading. It's not a different kind of truth to scientific truth or historical truth. No, you bring on your science. You bring on your historical investigation. And what you will find is men who saw the glory and majesty of God breaking into history. This one incident, just one of those many uh, teachings and miracles, and the greatest of all, that this man rose from the dead and hundreds of people saw it. It actually happened. It's true truth. And our faith doesn't rest on cleverly invented stories. Now it rests on the eyewitness accounts of those who saw his majesty when he came. And yet there are so many who will attack that. We'll, we'll think more about this over the next couple of weeks in the central uh, chapter of 2 Peter. But let me illustrate it just with one. Uh, one of the greatest heretics of the 20th century was a, a famous theologian called Rudolf Bultmann. His uh, life's work was to engage in what he called demythologizing the New Testament. His very starting point was that the New Testament was a cleverly invented story uh, from which if you tried really hard, you might extract a kernel of historical truth. But it's basically unreliable, and we know that dead men don't rise. So perhaps we'll find that this character, a very human Jesus, really existed, or maybe we won't. He was lauded as a teacher in the church, and yet uh, the apostle Peter would have had nothing to do with him. No, says Peter, we were eyewitnesses. We saw, and therefore your faith rests secure on God's actual appearance in Jesus Christ and the finished work on the cross. And he gives us one illustration of his eyewitness account, the uh, transfiguration. Perhaps he chose it because uh, he saw the Lord in the form in which he would not appear again until his return. His majesty uh, was not apparent in his crucifixion. He was just a man nailed to a cross. His majesty was not apparent uh, in his resurrection in the sense that his body was obviously aflame or anything like that. It wasn't apparent even in his ascension. He just rose up before their eyes uh, as the clouds enveloped him. And at his return, then we shall see him in the way that Peter saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And his emphasis throughout this book, because it's so often one of the first things uh, that false teachers who claim to be Christians will deny, is that Jesus Christ is returning in glory and majesty at the end of the age, personally and visibly, 
not in some mythical sense in which history might just get a little bit better. History is coming to an end. Jesus is returning. And we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says. And you can know that's really ahead of you in your future, in our common human future, because we were eyewitnesses of that same glorious majesty when we saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Only Peter, James, and John were taken up to see it. And so Peter says, that's what I saw and heard. At verse 17, he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We haven't got time to delve into it in great depth here this morning, but when the Father speaks to the Son in the presence of Peter, James, and John, he chooses to speak in words already revealed in Old Testament Scripture. He draws together uh, the uh, visible and the verbal, and that's what God always does when he reveals himself to human beings. He does a great thing, and then he explains the thing. And the event and the explanation always belong together. And so when the father says to the son, this is my son, he's echoing uh, that language of the Old Testament. Somewhere like Psalm 2, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. When God says of Jesus, this is my son, he's saying this is the king. This is the one with all authority uh, over heaven and earth before him. One day, every knee will bow. It's not just a a filial relationship. It's one that expresses that authority that the father has given to the son. This is my son, whom I love. There's an echo there uh, of many passages in the Old Testament, but particularly perhaps this one. Do you remember the story uh, when Abraham uh, is told by God to take Isaac uh, and to sacrifice him as a burnt offering in the mountains? He is your son, your only son, says the Lord, whom you love. And in that account, uh, the first time you read it, you're breathless, not knowing what's going to happen uh, next. Uh, Well, then Abraham says in faith, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And just as he's about to strike down uh, with the dagger, uh, the angel of the Lord comes and stays his hand. Abraham looks up and in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. The man loves his son And God, in loving his son, sends him as the substitute who will not be spared. But rather we will be spared because he dies for us. With him I am well pleased. This is my servant, says the prophet, uh, or the Lord through the prophet, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. This is the servant who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities whose punishment has brought us peace, and by whose wounds we are healed. And the father testifies to the son in these words. He says, this is my king. This is your substitute. This is the one who will take away your sins, that you also might be my children by adoption. Those quotations there uh, leading us into that whole panorama uh, of the biblical storyline. 
And Peter says, when we saw this glory and when we heard those words, at least when we began to reflect on it afterwards, we began to see who this one really was and all that God was doing for us in him. Friends, we're always in the second generation of the church. The church fails when it looks to the surrounding world and begins to lose confidence in its own message and start to imitate what it hears. Or when it looks back not to the first generation, to the apostolic generation, but to its own more recent history. And either begins to hanker after the way things were so much better when we were young, uh, or it overcorrects what it sees was wrong in a former generation. We are given these scriptures in order that we might stand always as the second generation. In our hands, the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, and more than eyewitnesses, if we might coin a non-English word, the ear witnesses as well. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. God reveals his son and then explains who he is and what he's come to do, that we might trust him and know him in all his life and godliness. Sometimes when I'm visiting uh, a house in the parish, uh, the television will be on in uh, the lounge room when I go round. And all too often what people will do is they will mute the voice while leaving the television on. Now, you're far too well behaved to know how to treat the vicar when he comes into your house not to do that. And if you have some corrections to make when visitors come, you know what to do. Uh, But I find myself then inevitably distracted. I'm watching this pointless soap opera or whatever it is, but without words. And I have no idea what is going on. Uh, I can't lip read. Uh, Are these people in love? Have they just made a pact to kill someone? Who knows? Uh, The visual without the verbal is ambiguous at best. And at worst, may lead you in entirely the wrong direction. Well, don't leave your vicar speculating. Turn off the television. Uh, The point is that pictures without words are only half communication and at worst, miscommunication. When God acts, when he sends his son, he gives us the explanation for who he is and what it means to know him. We don't just have God's saving acts, but God's inspired explanation of those facts. Jesus dying on a cross without the explanation that this was the one who was pierced for our transgressions. Just another tragic death in a cruel world. The apostolic witness, the New Testament, the words that God gave us are the means by which we unlock the riches of all that he has done for us. In Jesus Christ. Well, if that middle paragraph speaks to us of the apostolic witness, what we might call the New Testament, Peter, in the last paragraph, turns to the other half of God's word, the earlier two-thirds, what we call the Old Testament. If I might give you, as I read verses 19 and 20, a slightly more literal translation of verse 20, which is a little more ambiguous than our translation gives. Then we'll take a couple of minutes here, and then we'll close. We have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, what Peter is saying here about the Old Testament prophets might be, as our translation concludes and assumes, 
that when the prophets were given a revelation, they had no authority uh, to interpret it. God gave them the interpretation, and they simply transmitted it. Well, that's true and a good thing. But it might equally mean, and this is, I think, on balance what Peter is saying here, uh, that when God gives us his written word, as we have it, and this applies to both the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament, that it is given to us fully interpreted. It doesn't mean that there isn't work to do. It doesn't mean that there aren't points of dispute and areas where we have to admit that we need more help to come to a common agreement. But in the great matters of the revelation of God's word, it isn't a matter of private interpretation. That's what the false teachers, as we shall see from next week, were claiming. Oh, yes, God said that. And, you know, I take that this way. You see them often in the church today in movements like the health and wealth or prosperity gospel, taking verses out of context and twisting them such that God is made to promise what he never did. Worldly blessing and plenty rather than that being only promised for our eternal future in Jesus Christ. Or uh, more commonly, as we've seen uh, in the liberal interpreters of the 20th century, oh yes, Jesus spoke of his second coming, but uh, we interpret that as the church having a profound social impact uh, over the centuries of his existence. Of course he's not coming back. He didn't really mean that when we interpret it uh, according to our agendas and our lights. Now what Peter is saying to us is here is that the meaning is in the text not the reader, and not the preacher. And my job is to take out of this what is here, not what I wish to find in it. And when we read the word every day ourselves, that must be our desire. Lord, speak to me here, even and perhaps especially when it's hard for me to hear it. Because, frankly, your word shows me I'm wrong. Or your word shows me that I'm making some poor choices in my life. If all we do when we come to the scriptures is look for those affirmations of our present lifestyle, well, then we will have failed to listen clearly to Peter. No prophecy of scripture is a matter of private interpretation. It doesn't mean, as I say, the meaning isn't sometimes something we have to work at, and we certainly need the Lord's help in. It isn't something that we bring to and impose upon that which God has spoken to us. And only when we hear God's word as it really is, will it speak its wonderful message of hope, uh, the light that shines in the darkness of our despair and sin and unbelief, promising uh, a day dawning, an outward appearing, visible to all of the manifestation of Jesus Christ, that will finally unite our inward experience of trusting him now, that morning star rising in our hearts, as it were, to meet Christ when he returns visibly at the end of time. And then our inward faith and our outward experience will no longer have any dissonance between them. God's word makes us ready to meet Christ. God's word, as we receive it and let it speak to us, convicting us, compelling us, well, then it makes us look ahead and yearn for that day that will dawn and to trust in Christ in all his life and godliness uh, to be the star in our hearts 
today. That prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. We haven't time to dwell on this, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When we read the Bible, do we say Peter says or God says? Yes, we do. Both, always. Because Peter wrote this letter. And God wrote this letter. Because he was carried along by the Holy Spirit as he brought it to us. So let me close with some words of John Wesley. Twice in two weeks. I want to know one thing. A way to heaven, he said. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end he came from heaven. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. Friends, remember who you are in Jesus Christ and what he's called you to be. Look to the apostolic eyewitness testimony and know that your faith rests secure. And do it all as you come to be people of one book, most surely written by the Holy Spirit of God. Let's pray. Lord God, you said through one of your prophets, this is the one I esteem who who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Please would you make us humble, not falsely humble in a way that says we know nothing, but truly humbled by your word. And so receiving you as our Lord, listening to it as a sure word in a dark place. Make us contrite, for we know that like those people of old, we often hear your word and then forget it or disobey it. Please grant us true repentance and your Holy Spirit, that we may long for that day when the dawn will come, that we may trust now that Christ is in our hearts by faith. We may know him who is true. These things we ask for his name's sake. Amen.